Hello and welcome back to Ministry to State's Bible Study through the book of Daniel. My name is Will Stockdale, Ministry Associate with Ministry to State, and today we're going to be looking at the fourth chapter of Daniel. As was mentioned in part one, we know that Daniel served under three different leaders, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and Cyrus. We will be studying the last two figures in the following weeks, but so far we have only interacted with Nebuchadnezzar. And as we have seen, he is something of a curious, almost amusing character. His emotional disposition can go from calm to disturbed to outraged to adoring in a matter of verses. He relies on the God of Israel to interpret his dreams and then insults that very same God by attempting to kill his followers. And then, in a majorly ironic twist, Nebuchadnezzar threatens to kill those who insult that God. He makes death threats to the defiant while being incapable of protecting his own people from death. This sort of depiction of pagan kings is not unique to Daniel. We find it elsewhere in the Old Testament. In in the book of Esther, we see a similar treatment of King Ahasuerus. In Esther 6.1, in that chapter, we are told that the king is unable to fall asleep. And so, in order to assist him in this, he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Now, on the one hand, the king is depicted in his vanity, as if to say, well, if I cannot sleep, I might as well wake up the others and have them remind me how great I am. On the other hand, as one scholar has observed, the action of having his deeds recounted to him is meant to lull him back to sleep. This is a kind of royal way of counting sheep. So even his greatest deeds are seen as boring in comparison to the God of Israel. Or we can think of Psalm 2, 1 and 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. We could look at other examples of polemics in the Old Testament showing the greatness of God over the kings of the earth. But for the moment, we can say that these stories serve the dual purpose of polemic and encouragement. However, there is an additional element we must remember when looking at Nebuchadnezzar and the various other rulers in the Bible. What we must remember is that even though Nebuchadnezzar was a pagan king, God did not rejoice in his foolishness, in his idolatry and paganism. God has ordained government as an institution for the well-being and flourishing of the peoples of the earth. In writing about government officials, John Calvin states, They have a mandate from God, have been invested with divine authority, and are wholly God's representatives in a manner acting as his vicegerents. A vicegerent is one who exercises power on behalf of a ruler. We could also cite the oft-quoted Romans 13. What we can say is that God desires government rulers to lead with justice, righteousness, and goodness. To fail to do so is to misrepresent their office and to hurt those whom they are supposed to be leading. From these four stories in Daniel 1 through 4, it seems that God was after the heart of a pagan king. Throughout the four chapters featuring Nebuchadnezzar, particularly chapters 2 through 4, He has seen the superlative quality of the God of Israel, but it has not taken root in his heart. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar paid homage to Daniel, and in chapter 3, he sent out a decree. In the final chapter featuring Nebuchadnezzar, his response is different. 
I'm excited to look at his restoration from humiliation and a feature that is noticeably absent, shame. When God brings about restoration, we are to be free from shame. But first, let's get to the story. As we have been doing, we will divide the chapter, and that will be into five parts. Part one will be Daniel 4, 1 through 3. Part two, Daniel 4, 4 through 18. Part three, Daniel 4, 19 through 27. Part four, Daniel 4, 28 through 33. And part five, Daniel 4, 34 through 37. Then we will conclude with some final thoughts. So let's begin by looking at part one, Daniel 4, 1 through 3. As was just mentioned, we have been dividing these chapters into parts, or acts, as we said in chapter 2. But something I would like to mention is that this scenic breakup is not just some incidental feature to the narrative, some convenient way to move through the story. Sidney Gradanus quotes one scholar as saying, quote, The action is broken up into a sequence of scenes. Each scene presents happenings of a particular place and time concentrating the attention of the audience on the deeds and words spoken. Scenes, particularly as are depicted in the Hebrew Bible, are a characteristic of Hebrew narrative. And so knowing that a particular episode or chapter is intentionally broken up into individual scenes allows us to better understand what is happening and the meaning intended to be communicated. The first character we are introduced to in this chapter is Nebuchadnezzar. But as we read his first words, he addresses to all peoples, nations, and languages. Remember a reference to Babel in the book of Daniel. He proclaims peace to them. This is a very different sort of address than what we have seen in the past. Furthermore, the words in verse 3 closely match those of Psalm 145.13a, which is, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Something significant has happened to Nebuchadnezzar, and we will begin to see what that is in part two, Daniel 4, 14 through 18. As we are introduced to this chapter, we notice something else peculiar about it. Nebuchadnezzar is the narrator. The story begins with the king speaking in the first person. And so he describes himself as at ease and prospering in his palace. Clearly things are going well for him. At this time, he is one of the most powerful rulers in world history, the creator of one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. And there doesn't appear to be any immediate threats that he is facing. But as he laid on his bed, he experiences visions that alarm him. Then we see another feature that is both similar and different from the dream sequence in chapter 2. He invites the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers to interpret the visions for him. But this time he tells them the contents. Perhaps the ease of comfort has relieved a bit of the paranoia he felt in chapter 2. But like chapter 2, the court experts are unable to provide the king with an interpretation of the vision. Then in walks Daniel, and Nebuchadnezzar expresses his confidence that Daniel will be able to offer an interpretation. We are told that the vision is of a great tree under which the beasts find shade, the birds of the sky find habitat, and all flesh is fed from it. In the original language of the text, we see a connection between the king's prospering in his palace and the leaves of the tree. The Hebrew word that is translated prospering, quote, corresponds to a Hebrew word used to denote the luxuriant foliage of a tree, 
unquote. In one sense, there is a connection between the king's well-being and the flourishing of the people over whom he is ruler. Furthermore, it seems to be a feature of the ancient Near East to use tree language to describe rulers. We see this with Pharaoh and with David as well. As the vision continues, we are told that a watcher comes down to make a proclamation. This watcher is described as a holy one. This phrase is not only meant to convey that the watcher is one who is set apart, but that there is a moral quality in him that is superior to that of Nebuchadnezzar. The watcher proclaims that the tree will be cut down, the beast from under it and the birds and its branches will flee, and a band of iron will be placed around the stump, and his mind will be changed from that of a man to that of a beast. There is a shift here from thing to person. The tree, a thing, becomes a man. And it is this vision that so greatly troubles Nebuchadnezzar, and it troubles Daniel as well. And so, in part 3, Daniel four nineteen through 27 Daniel sets about offering an interpretation. But first he displays emotional intelligence. Noticing that the king is dismayed, he tells him not to be alarmed. Even though the vision clearly pertains to Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel shares with him a way out. In verse 27, he says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel's response is both bold and wise. In love, he speaks truth to power. Here the king is disturbed by a troubling vision. This Daniel detects, and after his interpretation, he tells the king that this vision might be avoided through an act of repentance. And I think there is an application for us today. As Lucas states, quote, day-to-day life presents situations, a family crisis, a problem at work, a strategic career choice, a pastoral problem, in which spiritual insight is needed in order to understand the situation and to respond to it appropriately, unquote. At times we see friends, families, co-workers who are behaving unwisely or dangerously, and we need to know how to respond to them. This takes time, discernment, and wisdom. We need to rely on Scripture to equip us in this. But sadly, Nebuchadnezzar does not heed Daniel's wise words, and we see the repercussions of this neglect in Part 4, Daniel 4, 28-33. One year later, as the king is walking on the roof of his palace, he begins to declare what he thinks is the greatness of his own glory. Nebuchadnezzar declares, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? This is an extreme expression of pride, a major episode of human hubris. Immediately, a voice from heaven responds to say in a word, Not so fast, Nebuchadnezzar. Then the vision which the king saw earlier comes to pass. There are some serious questions regarding what actually happened in Nebuchadnezzar. There are records in history of similar fates befalling other kings. Regardless of the exact diagnosis, quote, The one who thought of himself in godlike terms as the very center of the universe will be transformed into a beast so that he can learn that he is merely human after all, end quote. We see in this story a manifestation of what happens when humans attempt to make themselves like God. They become less than human. 
God has designed all humanity to flourish through right relationship with him. That includes right understanding of who we are. This is what the serpent tempted Adam and Eve with in the garden, to be something more than what God had set them up to be. And the results are always tragic. But thankfully, God did not leave things there. In part 5, Daniel 4, 34 through 37, this final section takes place at the end of the seven periods during which Nebuchadnezzar wandered the fields thinking he was a beast. Through acknowledging this feature of seven periods, we get a sense that perhaps Nebuchadnezzar's insane wandering might point beyond himself to the people of Israel. James M. Hamilton observes, quote, When we recognize that we are dealing with the end of a sevenfold period of time in Daniel 4, we begin to wonder whether the historical story of Nebuchadnezzar's insanity and restoration might point to something beyond itself, something like the restoration of Israel after its own sevenfold period of wandering insanity. End quote. What sent the people of God off into exile was the pursuit of foreign gods and idols. Here, God uses Nebuchadnezzar to teach both Babylon and Israel a lesson. The ending of the chapter begins with Nebuchadnezzar lifting his eyes to heaven. While not necessarily a literal act, the phrase depicts the king acknowledging his rightful place before God. His response is one of humility. That is, not thinking less of himself, for there wasn't much further down he could go, but thinking of himself in proper relation to the God of heaven. We are then told that the kingdom was restored to Nebuchadnezzar. But there's one more point I would like to make about his response. In the past, Nebuchadnezzar responded to God's actions from something of a distance. He set forth a decree or reacted privately in his palace. This reaction was public and personal. The last words of Nebuchadnezzar in this chapter are, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. To borrow a phrase from C.S. Lewis, the hounds of heaven were after the heart of King Nebuchadnezzar. While we don't know if this change was permanent or if it was like the previous episodes, what we do know is that God works all things to his own glory and praise. In conclusion, earlier in this podcast, I mentioned that shame was absent from Nebuchadnezzar's restoration. And I believe that it is something important for us to note. If there was anyone who should have felt shame for what happened to him, it was Nebuchadnezzar. To go from great king to wild beast is certainly a long fall. But we do not detect any shamefulness on his part. He went from humiliation to restoration to praise. I believe that is because when God does the restoring in our lives, no part of him desires for us to feel shame for our past actions and mistakes. Shame is something the enemy uses and wants to be present in us, not God. To quote Kurt Thompson, quote, In the biblical narrative, when we experience shame, we are not simply encountering one of an array of possible emotions. Rather, we are engaging evil in its most fundamental mode of operation. Unquote. Shame disintegrates and distorts. God restores. That is not to say that Christians do not experience shame. We do. I do all too often. But shame is not from the Father. 
Shame is a tool used by the enemy to undo and hinder the good, life-giving work God seeks to do in and through us. When we experience shame, we can be sure that the enemy is seeking to add insult to injury. And so I'd like to conclude with a quote from Ian Dugan. Quote, So take your eyes off yourself and your accomplishments. Take your eyes even off your failures and disasters. Instead, lift your eyes heavenward and look to Christ, the humbled and exalted King. That concludes our study of Daniel 4. Thank you for listening. I look forward to next week when we discuss Daniel chapter 5.